everyone, and welcome to another ARCS Chat. My name is Robin Bauer-Kilgo, and I'm one of the ARCS Chat team. Just a few quick technical notes. There is a slight delay, delay. in going public in our recording. So if you're going to follow along in the chat, just realize that there's a little bit of a delay happening right there. Um, also, a quick programming note. Last week, ARCS was happy to co-sponsor a webinar with CSAM, the Collection Stewardship Group, all about COVID and reopening. Um, if you want to go to collectionsstewardship.org, you can view that recording. It's also up on YouTube. They also have three more sessions all planned out for this week, um, all Collection Stewardship stuff. So if you want to take a look at them again, please go to collectionsstewardship.org. And without further ado, I'm going to hand the mic over to one of our hosts, Amanda Robinson. Thanks, Robin. Well, welcome, everyone. As Robin said, I'm Amanda, and I'll be taking the reins over today from John. This is a special episode of ARC's chat that came, due, came to be due to listener interest regarding how the numerous changes in the world resulted, resulting from COVID-19 will affect our insurance practices and requirements moving forward. Thank you to everyone who wrote in requesting this topic, and a special thank you to the representatives from these fantastic ARC sponsors, Huntington T. Block, Willis Tower Watson, Liberty Mutual Insurance Group, and Berkeley Asset Protection, who have generously come together today to weigh in on this subject and respond to your questions. Before we begin, we do want to state that, as a field, we are in an ever-evolving process to address the changing needs and challenges brought on by COVID-19. Our responses as an industry will continue to change and develop as we learn and adapt. So I say this as a gentle reminder to keep an open, flexible mind as we continue to progress toward a new normal. So, similar to the structure of our shippers chat from April, given the size of our panel, I will be moderating the conversation a little more heavily than usual. With that said, we hope to field many of our listeners' questions live so we can address the concerns and curiosities of our colleagues. To all those of you listening live, remember to go ahead and sign into your YouTube account or your Google account, just like you would sign into your Gmail, to chat with the panel members as well as the others in the chat group. Please direct your questions to specific panelists, if possible, to help avoid any confusion in response to the questions. Both Robin and John will be moderating the chat so we can address your questions as we go. So without further ado, let me introduce our panel. Today we have Adrian Reed joining us from Huntington D-Block, along with Robert Solomon from Willis Towers Watson, and Nicholas Reynolds from Berkeley Asset Protection, and finally, Robert Pittinger from Liberty Mutual Insurance Group. Everyone, welcome to ARCS Chat. Thank you. Yeah. So our chat today is structured into about four general areas, um, overarching questions in general regarding insurance, some context regarding the insurance cycle, insurance as it relates to exhibitions and loans, and insurance as it relates to our institutions. So to get started, Adrian, I'm going to punt my first question to you, and that is, can you kind of explain the general role of what a broker does versus what a underwriter does? Sure. Thanks, Amanda. And uh, thanks for having us here. We're very excited to have this discussion. Um, so Robert Salmon and I represent the broker side of the table, um, and Robert Pittenger and Nicholas Reynolds represent underwriters. As brokers, we represent the client. Uh, you, The museums are our clients. And what we do is uh, basically go to market or go to insurance companies and uh, respective underwriters that are employed by insurance companies to get different bids on insurance uh, for the museums and just uh, determine what the best fit is for the client based off of coverage terms, pricing, claim service, a whole uh, varied, a myriad of different things that um, impact the museum's product and insurance. 
and uh, you know, provide those options to the museum for them to select. If there actually is a claim, the insurance company is ultimately the one that pays out the loss. Um, so they are the ones that actually hand, write the check and hand it over to you um, to pay for that claim. So I hope that um, if anybody else would like to jump in on that. That's great, Adrian. thank you so much. So I think I'm gonna start with a bit of a general question that we had fielded in from some of our participants at a previous chat. Um, and that is what are some of the new requirements that you see resulting from the pandemic crisis? Are there some precedents that have been established during this time that you all see continuing? I'll start with that one. Um, and I'd like to uh, also uh, thank all of the ARCS team and, and the various members. It's a, a pleasure to uh, be affiliated with such an outstanding organization. Uh, so uh, uh, much of the whole uh, uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic issue is so new to us. And we just look back, it's only been a little over two and a half months. While it seems like an eternity while we're uh, isolating during this time, uh, for the most part, everything shut down. Uh, the, the biggest thing was to make sure that uh, collections were safe during the shutdown and that uh, facility management maintained tight controls on the museum, HVAC systems, dust control, pests. So there was a responsibility that uh, evolved out of the shutdown. Um, but other than that, from a uh, company standpoint, we look for the continued security, uh, the, the continued you know, monitoring as especially we go into reopening to make sure that uh, all the various uh, angles of the reopening process are uh, uh, monitored and uh, uh, security is uh, kept in place as uh, museum goers come back through our museum. Um, if there is any one big uh, change that I've seen is communication. To have each of you as clients contact your brokers, speak with your brokers because they're your front line. They are your experts uh, to be able to assist you. They know your museum and uh, they're there in the spot to be able to work with you uh, on what your needs might be if there are any changes. And then in turn, uh, you know, brokers like Adrian and, and Robert Salmon then will come to the companies and we will talk through various issues if there is a possible need or requirement that coverages be adjusted. Yeah, if I may. Yeah, I'd like to add just something to that. I, th I think the beauty of working with the museum community is that a lot of the goals and objectives of the museums in terms of safeguarding their collections is their whole mission. And the beauty of uh, uh, those of us who are involved in art insurance, be it from a broker side or the underwriter side, is that basically our goals and objectives ultimately are, are all the same. It's so basically we work in tandem. And I think that's quite a rare, so, you know, the, the art insurance is quite a rare part of the insurance industry in, in that regard. But basically, you know, the missions of the museum and ultimately the objective of the insurance companies that have no losses are, are basically one and the same. Um, I kind of, that question kind of folds in nicely to a follow-up to that, which is, have you started to field questions from institutions regarding 
or reduction in exposure over the past couple of months as underwriters? Or even are you even starting to get that type of feedback from your clients? Well, um, I can go first, Adrian, um, on this one. Um, yeah, I, th I think basically, particularly as we now, we're sort of, you know, a lot of museums are seven one fiscals. So we've basically been working quite heavily in terms of the whole renewal process for those museums that do renew July 1. And I think what's abundantly clear is that if you look, go back to the, you know, basically the beginning, middle of March, that already uh, with closures, um, exhibitions being postponed, delayed at best, cancelled at worst, that um, there's been this certainly discussion, quite serious discussions about, well, um, do we in fact get a reduction in premium, basically for the you know for the last quarter of uh, 2020 to, to yeah 2020, 2021? And I think it's basically, and I, certainly uh, Robert and Nick can jump in on this because they obviously got a different perspective. I think what we're seeing is that really there is only a reduction in premium for sort of reduced exposures if it fundamentally impacts the amount of insurance that you need or that you've been buying. So for example, if you're a museum that buys quite a substantial limit and you can basically look at your exhibition activity, find out that you've basically canceled shipments, you've reduced exhibition exposure, you've postponed or delayed exhibitions. If you can go to your broker and your underwriters and point out that there are substantially less risk in terms of just, you know, let's talk value, basic values of artworks in the museum, then, you know, you can perhaps discuss dropping your limits a bit. Um, and that, that would have been, you know, from March, middle of March, basically through to probably July 1. Um, but I think what we're seeing is if you can't really do that, then ultimately you're buying an annual policy for a certain amount of limit. And a lot of that premium, a lot of that exposure is based on basically simply what you've got in your collections or on site. Hmm. Yeah, I, I would add... Um that on some level, the risk is worse um, purely because the museums are empty. Part of the um, inbuilt, um, you know, strengths of museums is you have collection staff such as yourself in there almost 24 hours a day taking care of um, the artworks. Sorry, my dog is about to jump up on me. <laughs> um so, you know, I mean, fires can still happen, water damage can still happen. Arguably, that's actually a worse risk, um, you know, given the fact that um, no one's there. But, you know, to, to, to Robert's point, um, you know, where you're able to demonstrate that there are reduced exposures, um, every insurer will work with you to help some of the cost pain, excuse me, <laughs> no, you're fine. All dogs are welcome here and encouraged. Um, yeah, well, I can say at least, oh, go ahead, Adrian. Sure. So, yeah, we've, like Robert Salmon mentioned, also been, um, you know, fielding uh, responses from all the different underwriters and insurance companies to get their take on it. And like Nicholas said, you know, the vast majority of the largest claims that we've ever seen, um, you know, at museums throughout the you know, 55 years that we've been insuring them have been fire and water losses. And those don't go away and, in fact, could actually be worse uh, mm -hmm. in these circumstances. Last week, I had a client that um, 
showed up and turns out their, uh, the water heater from the uh, facility next door to them had burst and they had two inches of water in, in their space, you know, and nobody was there to see it. Uh, and so, you know, those kind of things still weigh heavily on us uh, in the insurance companies and risks that we still need to be uh, understand that the policy is on deck and ready to pay. Um, so unless you have a situation, a very specific situation where there has been an, a uh, very a specific coverage in place that you can take away, uh, which by the way, most, in, most museums uh, underinsure or insure at a, uh, a loss limit. So that usually isn't the case. Um, then, you know, there's not much uh, room there to be able to budge in terms of the premium uh, reductions. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Robert. Might, uh, might I add just uh, one additional point, and that is when you're uh, looking to reduce coverages, you need to keep in mind that if the museum has any uh, additional locations, whether it's a uh, an offsite uh, of the museum itself, or if you uh, uh, lease space at a fine art specialty warehouse, uh, that you should know what exactly the limits are in those various locations. Because as you start cutting back, you want to make sure that not only the main museum, but any other locations are included in your uh, analysis. That's a really good um, point. Go ahead, John. Nicholas, you're going to see an uptick in your business because of the dog. People are really, uh, <laughs> this is beautiful really enjoying she's, um, the company. So. She's, she's called she's called Jaja. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Gorgeous. <laughs> uh, actually, it's a good. Uh, no, it's okay. Do we actually have any questions coming in specifically, <laughs> not dog related? <laughs> Yeah, we do have one I can pass along. It says, in previous webinars, there has been a discussion of potentially having only one driver in a truck due to social distancing. Mm-hmm. Would our policies accept that? I think we need to look at all the uh, uh, the controls and uh, uh, specialty considerations that are made for that transport. Is it uh, extremely high-value transport? Is it, are we moving a single piece worth $200 million. If so, most likely the trucking companies will put a shield uh, in the uh, cab for the two employees. And if we have to have a a courier uh, join, then we always have a follow car uh, opportunity. Uh, But we don't know how long this requirement uh, will be out there, but um, uh, we need to, to be cognizant of the fact that th- there will be different types of shipments. And if it is not an extraordinarily high-valued one where couriers are not required, that's one scenario. But if they are required, it, it goes back to the communication with your broker and uh, uh, work through all the scenarios with them. Uh, your brokers then will come to the, the carriers and uh, the carrier will have an opportunity to talk through what what additional uh, security measures could be uh, implemented to uh, to help protect the works? Adrian, did you have a follow-up you wanted to add? Yeah, I mean, I can speak just, uh, you know, from the coverage standpoint, you know, a museum policy, if you have a policy, uh, you know, with Willis or HTB, it's, it's very similar. Um, there is not any type of, you know, transit exclusion, you know, or, or warranty that requires you to have a certain number of people in the car. Um, but that being said, you know, like, like Robert Pittenger said, 
you know, just be in close communication with your broker, let them know the situation, even if you're within your transit limits and you, you have the ability to do so, um, you know, it's always good to just give them a heads up and, and let them know what the plan is, uh, see if they have any recommendations. That would be my rec- recommendation. Go ahead, Robert. Another comment to that point. Uh, interestingly enough, if you, if you sort of turn the clock back a couple of decades in terms of insurance for ship for transits in particular, there used to be a breakout rate that you basically, if you had a courier, you got a, a reduced rate per million than if you didn't, particularly for international shipments. Um, that is going back a couple of decades, and so now we, we don't have that. It basically, I think the way the industry also has developed is the insurers very much look to you as the museum professionals to basically work out how you want something to, to happen and be dealt with. And then you report that back to your broker who then negotiates with the underwriters to find out whether that's acceptable. But I just think it's a bear in mind, as the values of art have gone up and up and up, this kind of differential rate for with a courier, rate for not with a courier, is, is basically long gone. Go ahead, Nicholas. I just wanted to chip in. As, as I, I think it was um, borne out fairly clearly in the session with the with the packers and shippers. There's just going to have to be a lot of cooperation, um, a lot of planning, a lot of thinking about things ever so slightly differently. Um, you know, I, I don't think anyone would, you know, want to force a courier into a truck plastic sheet, uh, you know, screen um, aside, I think, um, you know, some thoughts going to have to be given around, okay, is it really necessary to move something from A to B? Would it be better to wait? Um, you know, it, it's, but again, what we know today might well be very different from what we know tomorrow. Um, the situation is, I think, constantly evolving. So it's it's just a question of patience and planning, and you know open mindedness. So, Go ahead, John. Um, there was a a comment in the in the chat about indemnity, and I do want to mention that um, we did approach. Uh, Patricia Loiko about um, indemnity, indemnity policy regarding shipping since we're on the topic of, uh, of shipping. Um, and her comment was that there's nothing new, uh, nothing has changed. And um, so with that in mind, you know, all of those requirements are still there uh, in terms of say a courier has to be on the plane or on the truck, uh, follow cars are not permitted uh, with, with indemnity. So, all of the existing indemnity policies are still in place at the moment. So I just wanted to add that uh, little note. So, um, yeah, anyway. Is, are there any more questions coming in through the chat? Yeah, um, there's a bunch of questions asking everyone's kind of opinions on electronic signatures and programs like DocuSign and kind of what's everyone's thoughts on those or if that's going to change at all in the coming months. For, do they spec- I'm sorry, do they specify for like loan contracts or exhibition contracts or? I think bill, of lo- bill of ladings. Yeah, it basically just says using stuff like DocuSign yeah. is it being considered right now. Mm. Okay. Does anyone on the panel want to yeah. respond to that? I'll yeah, I mean, I, 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 oh, go ahead. I think it's fine. I mean, we have, um, we, we um, 
also insure a lot of jewelers and very early on in this pandemic um you know the, the practice of physically you know taking the uh, fedex pack and and signing for it um you know stopped very very quickly um and you know it, it's it's fine i it's not it's not an alternative for the other um actions that go into receiving goods say on a bill of lading it's not like you can just drop a crate at the door and, and just say hey it's delivered i mean there, there still has to you know be the proper inspection process but as a you know not having a wet signature i think given the circumstances no one's going to argue with that mm-hmm. There was a slight clarification too. Basically, they're asking, saying, "Bill of Landing, what if there's no signature at all? <laughs> what would we do in that situation?" Mm-hmm. Well, I think you have a, an option to perhaps uh, send a confirmation email that the uh, shipper can send an email to the museum and have the museum respond back saying, "Yes, a prior discussion with the uh, uh, delivery crew, the." Uh, uh, crate was uh, delivered and uh, was initially inspected, and all appears to be in order uh, based on the the current condition. So the email is an option. I don't think bring your own pen is going to necessarily be an option with this yet, but that uh, is some, something uh, that could be added to the list. But I, I would say if we yeah. can't get the electronic signature, then uh, a confirmation email would serve as that documentation. Yeah, perhaps I mean, just a reference in, in lieu of a signature on the bill of lading so mm-hmm. everyone's clear what they're referencing. But it, again, no one's, no one's going to fight you on that. Do you have a follow-up, Adrian? Yeah, I mean, I, I had heard one shipper uh, from, that, from that discussion last week, you know, talking about um, sort of like Amazon taking a picture, you know, of your package in your front porch and leaving it, and that's their confirmation that they've delivered it. Um, doesn't necessarily help you if your package is stolen uh, from your front porch. And I I guess I would just say that, you know, art is not an Amazon delivery and we shouldn't be treating it that way. Um, The importance of the bill of lading is really to establish that paper trail and that documentation. You know, documentation and uh, procedures like that are really so important when it comes to loss prevention with museums. I mean, I almost put it up there with just, you know, facility maintenance Um, You have to have good procedures and protocol and documentation to be able to establish, you know, a whole myriad of different things. So uh, I would urge against that kind of practice and, uh, you know, maybe come up with something like Robert Pinter said and Lou, um, you know, having some sort of email communication where you're you're effectively closing the loop uh, in terms of delivery and receipt. Um, do you have any other questions that you want to throw away, Robin, from the chat before we move on? Why don't you guys go ahead and go on to, we'll let the chat kind of fill up again, and then we mm-hmm. can come back and check. I think this might be a good time to talk a little bit about the insurance cycle. And I wonder if we could have <clears throat> someone on the panel explain a little bit about a hard and soft market and how that impacts premium rates for museums. Who wants to take that one? <laughs> Go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. Yeah, I mean, so the, the insurance goes through cycles, and it's ultimately dependent upon its profitability. Um, typically, what happens when the industry is making money, more investors come into the business because they see opportunities to make money, um, and 
so with any other kind of supply and demand, um, oversupply reduces prices. Um, conversely, when there's adverse experience in the insurance industry, it's a less attractive option for people to invest money in. And so um, the supply dries up, which in turn increases pricing. A lot of that's driven um, by you know the, the obvious results of an insurance industry. I mean, we look back over the past you know three or four years, and we've had a myriad of um, you know weather-related incidents. You know, the hurricanes, the wildfires. Um, you know, you also uh, uh, those are sort of pertaining to fine art, but on a broader um, perspective, you know, there's um, you know increased plaintiff litigation against carriers. Um, there are litigation funds that are all going after the insurance companies and adversely affecting their results. And so where we are, even COVID aside, which is going to be a, probably another 9-11 size event, I mean, it's going to be substantial. Um, you know, the, the result of those things had already pushed. We were definitely in a hardening market. Did you have a follow-up, Robert, you wanted to add? I, yeah, I mean, I, this is Robert Salmon. Um, now, as a broker, you know, I, I can see where insurers, uh, particularly it started that last September, certainly out of London, under the London market. There was talk with this hardening market. Um, you know, and maybe some of the odd men out there, but I'm actually not it, you know, seeing a hardening market yet. Um, it basically, the beginning of the year, there was talk of it, you know, on your renewals, some people suggesting, and I'm talking about museums, obviously, um, you know, maybe a three or 4% increase. Worst case scenario, budget, you know, around 4%, 5% increase. As we've got closer, again, to this July 1 fiscal, um, you know, big renewal date in the, in the insurance calendar, I, I would say we're basically seeing flat renewals. Um, I don't know whether that's, you know, we've got some lag time. Um, London definitely did try and get the rates up there. As I said, right at the beginning of the year, end of last year, there was a lot of talk about it, still is. But certainly in the US, on the domestic insurance carrier market side, um, not really seeing it. And I, I would say that the situation is still, you know, pretty competitive. Uh, for the for museums, generally at desired risks, and there's, there's quite a lot of keenness and competitiveness in terms of uh, the insurance carriers out there you know, wanting to quote a, a new opportunity. And when you have that kind of competit competitiveness, then that will keep the rates down and keep it as a softer market. Also, if you look back, going over the last decade or so, um, the rates, kind of per million, have actually been fairly stable, if not you know, coming down. As, as the values, again, as art values have gone up, Museums are put in a position of having to buy more limits of insurance. And what that has done is basically been forcing the price per million lower. 
And if I might add just an additional point, the soft market uh, uh, is impacted by so much, so many elements out there. And Nicholas and Robert have highlighted the the big ones. But we we have to be mindful of of the natural catastrophes that uh, uh, we've all uh, experienced over the last three to five years, especially the big fires in California, and that has made a, a major mark on the uh, the insurance industry because uh, there are billions of dollars paid out uh, for. That in, in all areas. Now, I'm not just referring to the museum side, but uh, you know, all losses, complete neighborhoods were gone. So that is all included in the uh, the market cycles, because it, it this last soft market that we've had has lasted a very long time, and uh, uh, one would expect that we'll start seeing changes this fall and into next year. Did you have a follow up, John? Yeah, I had, out of curiosity, and uh, maybe more historically speaking, what are the circumstances that might actually harden the market? Um, and is that something that we should, I mean, you, you maybe alluded to it, uh, Robert Pittenger, about, you know, it's been soft for a while, but, uh, you know, are we looking at some, a, a possibility of a situation where it might harden? I, I, I can respond to that. Um, I think we sort of touched on it. I mean, for example, if you go All back. Right, don't, I, or excuse me, uh, John, I don't know if you, uh, we lost you there, but uh, might I uh, mention that many people talk about uh, the COVID situation as a double black swan event, um, meaning that it's it's could be considered greater than a, uh, a severe hurricane hitting a mainland area. And uh, generally, those type events, it could be single, not always a combination, but uh, one will kick it in because uh, reinsurance costs will go up and uh, the losses still have to be paid. So it's a, a big cycle there, but the economic environment, the, the investment side also plays a big part. Go ahead, Adrian. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd like to add to that in terms of the reinsurance um, cycle, because a lot of reinsurance is, uh, runs on a 1-1 renewal basis. And so a lot will tell on uh, what happens with those renewals come 2021. And from the indications that we've received from various markets, you know, um, there's so much degree of uncertainty right now. So much has changed in the past two months that we could have ever imagined. And so as we are getting estimate requests for 2021, 2022, we're really being mindful about that and trying to be conservative because the last thing we want to do is provide an estimate, you know, that is just, you know, off the mark in terms of, uh, you know, what the pricing is in 2021, 2022, um, and the museum's not prepared for it. So, you know, we've been trying to be conservative in that way. And I know it's difficult news to, to get an estimate that's higher than expected, but it's just with a grain of caution. I'm sorry, Robert Simon. I think you had gotten cut off earlier with the technical glitch. Okay. Go ahead and continue. Well, just, it was just like using some sort of real life kind of examples when we talk about what, what, what has caused the market to harden before. And I, again, pertaining this is specifically to the museum insurance, you know, collections insurance world. I think you've got to go back to, you know, first of all, 9-11, that had a huge impact, but it was more, that had a more impact of changing the coverage. Terrorism, you know, basically was taken away for a while until you got the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act. Um, it didn't, I'm not sure it had a huge impact on actual pricing, at least for the museum world, 
Uh, it was more basically, you know, you've been used to getting terrorism coverage. Now you suddenly didn't have it for about 15 months until insurers started giving you back again at a slight additional premium. Um, then the other big one, I think, um, which has always caused a bit of confusion, was Hurricane Katrina, which I think is like 2005. So we're going back again quite a long way. And what that did, everyone thought, well, it's a hurricane. Um, what that actually did was it made the insurance world look at their modeling in a much different, more different way. And they suddenly realized that they'd been underestimating what catastrophic, something like a Katrina, how they under, underestimated what catastrophic loss could be. And what that did, not so much on coastal areas, was it really hit home for museums and large private collectors in California. And suddenly the price of earthquake insurance shot up like threefold at the beginning of like 2007. And that was because, not because of earthquakes, but because of actually the hurricane losses and the insurers suddenly realizing that they needed to completely reanalyze their, their loss models. And so museums in California, particularly uh, LA and San Francisco, yeah, the earthquake charges were three times what they had been. And it caused actually a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of you know, real serious hardship in museums being able to buy enough just to, not to satisfy their own collection needs, but just to satisfy lender needs. And then probably, you know, the next one along, which really, I think, impacted a lot of people in the art insurance world is, was Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy, which probably, you know, closer to everyone's recent, more recent memory. Did you have a follow-up, John, from the chat? Yeah, people are. T uh, there are some people asking about if um, you know along the lines of, of what we're talking about, specifying specific disasters. Um, if pandemic com coverage is something that is likely to take effect, or is that sort of uh, uh, already included in various other types of coverages? So go ahead, Adrian. Speaking, um, you know, COVID wasn't a physical loss or damage that impacted art insurance. So as a direct consequence in terms of coverage, there shouldn't be any change. Um, COVID uh, or pandemic insurance really would come more into play with business interruption um, losses and, and insurance related to that, uh, which is a commercial insurance. Uh, very, very different. Different from the museum's fine art collection insurance. Is there anything else from the chat that came in, John or Robin, that you'd like to throw into the panel? I have one from early on that we kind of skipped, which is, has there been any discussion of potential visitor exposure liability amongst providers? Hmm. I'll make a comment on mm -hmm. that one. Uh, for the purpose of uh, our call today, as I understand it, we're talking about collection insurance, which is the um, the insurance to protect the museum's uh, permit collection as well as the the loans that the museum has taken in. And uh, we're not discussing the liability, the building, the workers' comp. So. Uh, that perhaps would be a topic for a, another conversation. And it's an excellent question because as museums start to reopen, there's a whole new set of requirements that uh, will have to be deployed. And uh, uh, that question would fit very well in, in, in that arena. I, I would be 
just curious if a courier as a, as a human in, in all the interaction, but caring for collections, uh, being representative of collections in transit, would that ever, would that individual's health safety at all ever be something that might be covered under a fine arts policy? No, it, we would, a fine arts policy would only handle the direct physical loss to the actual works. Okay. Does anyone, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut anyone off if they had follow-up to that. Oh. I guess I did. Uh, I mean, I think we're all in agreement that the answer is if it's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a collections yeah. insurance policy, it's the artwork, and, and the key is it's got to be a physical loss or damage. Um, so we, we've, we certainly had some requests about um, can artworks, we've actually, you know, more in children's museum type situation where we've got, had some exhibits that um, supposedly they're going to have to replace because they can no longer sanitize them um, with confidence. Um, and so it sounds to me that this child exhibit, uh, a lot of the characters in it might have to be totally replaced. So we're being asked, would, would the policy respond to that? And that, that's going to be an interesting one um, because if they've been sanitized previously, uh, dry cleaned or what have you, or even frozen, why why uh, can they not be again? And, and I think it's it's all just about having a uh, confidence that the actual cleaning process, sanitization, isn't as uh, perhaps as good as it, as it, it should be, uh, which may send the exhibit or the exhibit items now um, useless. So uh, that'll be an interesting one, I think, to present to our insurers when the time comes. Yeah, absolutely. It's from someone with a fine art background and you say sanitize, I just see people running with Lysol cans at my paintings and that terrifies me. But I can see yeah, how the, the reproduction are, might be Yeah, these, these, are, these are, I guess I should sort of try to explain, these are, these are without giving too much away, these are kind of like little cloth dolls, cloth animals, mixture of wood and, you know, I guess, fabric. And I think they're worried that the fabric will never be clean again. Yeah, well, it's an excellent point because I'm sure many people are dealing with that. And if yeah. we're only thinking in one mindset, it doesn't necessarily touch on all the different clients that you all service. So that's great. Yeah, the chat actually, someone has, would FAI, Fine Arts Insurance, be involved if a disinfecting spray is used on collections that cause damage? So people are asking that question. And I know even anecdotally on the uh, CSAM listserv messages, you've seen things coming out about people with the disinfectant questions and with the sprays yeah. and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So I think this is going to be a question that's going to come up over and over again, for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, what if something is damaged from a disinfectant? I mean, you know, there <laughs> it's going to happen, right? Um, there was an interesting question here about... Um, uh, though every institution's policy is slightly different, could you say a general word about pandemic-related impacts that would fall under common exclusions versus those that would be covered? Well, Who I, wants I, to I, take I, that? I, <laughs> Go I, ahead, Robert. I can start off and then everyone else can jump in. Um, I mean, quite, quite a lot of museum policies, uh, particularly out of London again, um, but also some domestic carriers, do have um, an exclusion of loss due to virus or bacteria. But again, the, the thing here is we're talking about collections objects and artworks. There's got to be some physical loss or damage. Uh, so with the question that exclusion is put on, I guess, for exactly this kind of situation, COVID-19. But again, if COVID-19 doesn't actually have any impact um, damage-wise to 
do the artworks, then it's it seems to me almost a seemingly redundant exclusion. Um, London has also recently produced, has been trying with some, uh, I don't know how what degree of success, but uh, put on, they've actually written um, and already given it a Lloyd's um, sort of association clause number, a, a coronavirus exclusion, um, which basically came out 4th of March. 2020 was when it first was sort of thrown out there. And that basically says, your insurance policy does not cover any claim in any way caused by or resulting from coronavirus, COVID-19, severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2, any mutation or variation of SARS-CoV-2, or any fear or threat of the above. So kind of interesting Lang I mean, interesting language he put under a physical loss finance policy. And really, you know, one could argue that that has no business being under a finance insurance policy in the first place. But so anyway, underwriters, I think, are some, are obviously trying to like put out some protections so they don't suddenly get what they would deem unexpected type losses. Mm. Nicholas, did you have a follow-up to that? Yeah, I, I just wanted to, to comment on that because... The, those exclusions, uh, particularly the one that Robert's talking about, are coming out of the reinsurance market because it's not terribly different from asbestos. The reinsurers are just trying to ring fence their exposures on this so that they can start 2020, 2021 with a clean slate saying there are no legacy issues there. Um, that's what's, you know, frankly, frankly driving it. Um, they, it's some, sometimes the insurance industry does act with a one-size-fits-all response, and, and whilst arguably um, you know, there's there's no COVID coverage to uh, uh, artwork, um, the the addition of that exclusion will still mean insurance is available going forward at good competitive terms and prices. Robin, do we have anything else coming through the chat before we move on? Um, one just popped in saying, I wonder if anyone is expecting increased claims for artwork in transit as our industry might maybe just decreasing the use of couriers in the future. Less eyes on shipments equals more accidents. Do you guys see anything like that happening or do you suspect anything like that happening? I think there's a likelihood that that could happen. And that's why we have to be very careful before we embark on a shipment to know what the current, uh, uh, perhaps if it's going uh, via uh, air freight, uh, what is the vessel's schedule? Uh, are, are they uh, operating on a frequent basis so that we make sure that uh, the, the art to be uh, shipped does not arrive at the facility too early, that uh, it fits more with the schedule? We want to be very careful that uh, as we ship art, that it's monitored and, and can be managed in each of the very uh, various stages. And with the slowdown that's obvious out there with the, the cutback in the number of flights, uh, we will all be competing for those flights uh, to, to get our work on there. And we'll have to make sure that the schedules uh, align. Go ahead, Adrian. Did you have a follow-up to that? Yeah, I mean, the, the last uh, arc chat that you had with the shippers was very interesting because this um, uh, question about sort of pent-up demand and, 
you know, who's going to get the first uh, access? How are they going to prioritize uh, museums and their shipments in terms of when everybody starts kicking back into gear? Um, you know, it was very interesting to hear their, uh, their responses to that. My impression and hope really is that, you know, after all this is said and done, transits are actually handled far more carefully and there's far more communication. Um, and that, you know, would be a net, net gain. Um, that, that would be at least my hope uh, and after all this is done. Go ahead, Robert Simmon. Also, shorter term, uh, I think also a lot of it's going to be, you know, what, what the lender's requirements are uh, on, a, on a lot of these uh, situations. And if, you know, the comfort level, as we talked about already, you know, do, do museum registrars have a comfort level in getting, you know, getting into a truck? Uh, or are they going to be happier in a, in a, in a follow car? Um, I also say, in sort of just like bigger picture, um, that the insurance industries is, is often criticised for being um, reactive rather than proactive. And I think often in terms of a volume of art insurance claims, if, let's say, once museums start opening up again and shipments occur and exhibitions are, that were postponed are now starting to take place, that if, because of the shipping, um, I guess, is done, is done rather differently and there are less curious, for example, if we suddenly see an uptick in claims coming in, then that's when the insurance world then responds and reacts to that uptick in claims. If there is no uptick in claims, then I think it's going to be more a situation where you know, we rely on the museum professionals, working with the professional final shippers in terms of deciding what works and what doesn't work. Go ahead, John. I want to continue on the courier topic because there's a few questions about that. Um, I'll present this as a double question. So, A, how acceptable is having uh, a courier on each end of a shipment uh, in terms of meeting a, a courier policy? Um, so, so someone supervising at the first airport and then someone at the, at the other end. And then also uh, some companies are doing now a virtual or digital uh, courier. Um, and how acceptable is that in terms of uh, policies? And, um, and if, I mean, assuming approval uh, on, on an institutional level or a legal level. Did you want to respond to that, Adrian? Yeah, I mean, I think that's great, uh, quite honestly. Um, you know, it reduces the expense uh, on the museums um, for, for having that. You know, it just, it really relies, goes back down to, you know, what kind of level of trust do you have with your institution that you're, um, that you're lending to? And uh, what degree of certainty do you have that they will follow the protocol that they have, uh, you know, told you that they would do? Um, to Robert, uh, to Robert's point, you know, it is a reactive sort of thing. So if we start seeing issues come up from it, then, you know, of course it'll be, there'll be a re reactive result to it. Um, but I mean, I think it's actually a good, good thing, uh, in terms of reducing costs to come up with a way to, uh, collaborate and cooperate virtually, um, with your colleagues and, um, and get the job done without somebody getting on a plane. 
Did Nick and Robert have any additional comments, actually, as, as they're the ones, the, the underwriters on this? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think... I, <laughs> yes, and I, I mean, it, it's, it is going to require, as mentioned earlier, it's going to require a lot more coordination talking between the interested parties. Um, you know, as insurers, I, I'll speak for uh, Mr. Pettinger, but, you know, we do have absolute confidence in your ability to transport artwork safely you know, between point A and point B. Um, you know, historically, you've proven that you're capable of, 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 of managing that process. So um, it, it, it's, it's, again, a lot's going to depend on what it is, how big it is, where it's going to, from when all, all, all those things so it's gonna it's just gonna be a conversation um but I, I mean i would point out also that you know always read your policy because uh, as far as i'm aware there are very few museum insurance policies out there that say you have to have your artwork couriered or it's got to go this way or that way you're given a, a tremendous i mean it's actually a staggering latitude um both in terms of limit and coverage um, so, it, you know, it's, it's always, you know, make the best decision that you can. Yeah. And I would just add, because uh, those are all excellent points that uh, my colleagues have mentioned, communication is the key. Um, when, when the museum team puts together their plan, communicating it with a broker, especially if it's an international flight, there's so many more complications because... Uh, from an international perspective, we don't always know uh, what the current uh, uh, shipping uh, requirements are or, uh, as far as receiving goods in that particular country. We don't know what stage of opening up that country might be. So uh, just to, to run through those uh, scenarios uh, with your broker and the broker can then come to the carriers and uh, we can talk about what some of the options might be. Uh, most likely for the very large single pieces, we'll find that there will be more complex uh, uh, shipping requirements for them. Uh, so it goes back to what Nicholas had said. It, it depends heavily on what the size and the values are, but um, the, the, the very fragile and the very expensive works or very high valued works are the ones that are going to take a, a lot more time. Go ahead, Robert. Uh, on, uh, on the sort of broker perspective, uh, and I think Adrian would probably agree with me on this, is the last thing we want to see, though, is policies out of the, out of the U.S. art insurance uh, market, and indeed perhaps that matter London, sort of turn into something like some of the other European countries have, where they actually do write into the policy specific requirements about how things will be shipped as well as they do on how things will be displayed and whether there are two drivers and whether a courier. And I'm actually looking at a policy here. It's a French insurance company. And it actually stipulates, there's about a half a page of requirements for how you will ship. So that is the insurance company basically dictating and mandating to the museum how they will actually deal with a certain value shipment. And I think this is where, you know, to echo what all of us have said, this communication, the greater communication we have, the less likely we'll be forced into a position like is coming out of France. 
And I'd be even curious to see just in the few months that most of the world has been put in a work from home remote scenario, what technologies have come out of this that will go a long way, like we've already touched on, that may take the place of things where we had been sending people before or may be useful where we hadn't been using them before. And I think it will play a role in courier trips, especially, or with loans and communicating with lenders. Go ahead, John, do you have something from the chat? Yeah. So, you know, along the lines of using technology, um, the, there's discussion about the virtual condition reporting and, um, you know, in the instance of a claim, how well does that hold up? And, and, I'm going to assume, and, and maybe uh, the person who asked this question could clarify if, if I don't state this properly, a virtual condition report would be essentially doing a, a video chat of some sort um, while reviewing an object. And uh, so assuming you do that, and in the instance of a claim, how well do we, or how do we, how do we file a claim in that instance? And how does that hold up? I'm familiar with uh, a couple of new uh, uh, entities out there that are offering this type of uh, condition reporting. And I, the way I understand them, the most important uh, parts of it will be the documentation because part of that virtual uh, condition report will be detailed uh, notes and observations on the actual work itself and a lot of very uh, high-definition images front and back uh, uh, across the various quadrants of the work to make sure that there is a, uh, a, a very dependable uh, documentation uh, uh, with the, the images uh, that uh, would uh, identify how the, the condition was at that particular time. Did anyone have a follow-up to Robert's comments? Yeah, I mean, it, it's... They they change already. I mean, it's you're photographing a, a, a an object, and it's all about documenting the changing condition from you know time A to time B. Was there anything else from the chat, John? No, there's just just a, a lot more discussion about the. Um the the courier question is 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 a live one and um you know it's kind of shrouded in uncertainty of course but um you know just how to do virtual and digital courier trips and everything and you know would uh your shipping agent who is supervising at the airport and on the tarmac uh is that can that be considered a courier and uh, these types of questions and then you know where does where does uh, a the technology aspect, the virtual courier, uh, where can that um, actually jump in? And, you know, the legalities of it, you know, in terms of homeland security and, you know, airport uh, security and, and everything. So that's, that's kind of where that discussion is going. If anyone has anything to add on that, that would be, that would be great. That's where we need the uh, indemnity. Part. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It might be a, a good for, topic for some point down the road when we all yeah. start to figure out a little bit better how we're going to reopen and start moving again and what we're comfortable with and what's safe. Mm -hmm. also, Go ahead, Robert. I could say, yeah, I, mean, I also think, you know, in terms of particularly a traveling exhibition where, you know, there might be three venues and the artwork goes to all three. And obviously the condition report is fundamentally important just for the condition of the artwork itself from venue to venue. But if, for example, the insurance 
on that artwork was completely seamless and covered on a complete wall-to-wall basis, um, including all the transits and at each venue. And yes, we do the condition report, but it's still the same insurance company that's actually going to be responding in event of loss or damage. That, 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 that's the kind of, I guess, the, the, perf- the perfect kind of uh, world situation. More complicated and less perfect is if you've got three venues and each of those venues is providing a different insurance product. Might even be one, one, one venue might be government indemnity. Uh, another one might be, you know, foreign insurance company, and then the U.S. venue has the, the, the good old U.S. insurance. And so that, in that situation, because you are pretending, you're basically coming down to, well, what, where exactly did the loss of damage occur? And when you've got three different insurance-type contracts, it becomes a lot more pivotal, or rather the condition report becomes a lot more pivotal about which carrier is then responsible. Um, so I think I think that will impact to the complexity of the of the exhibition and the complexity of the actual insurance arrangements. And it might be for a while that we decide traveling shows should really be on a complete wall-to-wall basis, all with one insurance company, until we do resolve this whole condition report um, subject. Did you have Adrian? Yeah. Something to think about. So a lot of museums, you know, we talk about this a lot, you know, the, the patchwork insurance, which is the cheaper option versus a wall-to-wall, which is what Robert's talking about. It's more expensive. And, you know, I, I see a lot of museums steer away from that just because it's more costly. But maybe, you know, with the virtual condition report and the lack of couriers, those cost savings, you know, are taken off the table and then maybe can be applied towards buying a wall-to-wall policy you know, uh, like Robert's talking about, um, you know, so maybe that's a, a solution in terms of a budget standpoint that you can transfer those savings from one uh, area to the other. That's a very good point. And, and just in terms of the changing world we're, we're moving forward and maybe the, the cost of that type of policy is worth it, is worth the investment versus having um, separate policies that just because it gives us the peace of mind that that a policy that that offers. So we're coming towards the end of our um, end of our chat here, and I did want to squeeze in one more question before we start wrapping things up, and that's a little bit we've touched on it kind of in the beginning of our chat, but whether or not um, the loss of revenue and financial instability of institutions will play a role on the premiums, and how the reopening of institutions may or may not impact their insurance coverage or practices. You want to go ahead and take that, Adrian? Yeah, I'll, I'll just start it off. And, and to Robert Salmon's point about the hard market, I think a lot of what we're seeing in terms of 7-1 renewals is a direct result of um, the financial austerity and, and dire straits that museums are in right now. Um, you know, we're, we're pushing as much as we can to reduce those uh, premium increases just exactly for that reason. So, um, you know, I, I just, I think that that is something important to add to the discussion. Do you have a follow-up, Nicholas? Yeah, I mean, I, just to point out that, you know, your fine art insurance policy is mostly based on the value of your artwork rather than um, your revenues. Um, I think it, it does beg a, an examination 
buy the insurance purchases of you know the basis on which they're making their insurance purchase, they need to start thinking about um, you know why they're buying X limit as opposed to X minus ten or, or or what have you. They should look at the deductibles, um, and you know really um, give serious consideration as to you know what the, in their mind the purpose of insurance is. Because we kind of a lot of it is bought on the basis. Well, I know they buy, you know, X million, and so we're twice the size, so we'll buy two X. I realise that's a grave oversimplification of it, but I I think this is one of those times where, you know, you really have to understand and articulate what you're buying your insurance for and base it on that. And this is just a great time to go back and revisit that. It's a very wonderful point. Does anyone else have a follow-up comment? Let's go ahead, Robert. I just go working off what Nick has just um, you know, suggested and been talking about, and that is, you know, with that, I think is, um, you know, a lot of larger institutions. Uh, we talk about the values, but a lot of the larger institutions, the amount that they buy is almost dictated to by the, their loan obligations. Um, so if we see, say, for a period of time of, uh, during this, you know, what's going to be sort of um, an era of some uncertainty for a while, then maybe there will be less loans and less exhibitions. And if that is the case, then to speak to Nick's point, then yes, if you have less loan obligations, maybe for your own collection, you don't need as much limit. Um, but that, you know, has to be looked at very closely and, uh, the short, you obviously short-term loans versus long-term loan obligations, and how much of the permanent collection is, you know, the, what percentage of long-term loans makes up some of that permanent collection. Um, so I, there are so yeah, for so many factors that take into account, and we're just really starting, um, you know, looking at these all these considerations. Well, that's wonderful feedback, and I'm going to go ahead and wrap us up here. Um, I want to thank all of our participants again on the panel for their insight, their time, and their expertise. We have Adrian Reed with us from Huntington T. Block, Robert Salmon from Willis Towers Watson, Nicholas Reynolds from Berkeley Asset Protection, and Robert Pittinger from Liberty Mutual Insurance Group. ARCS would like to thank them all for their continued support and the continued sponsorship of these companies as it allows us to continue to provide resources and content for our membership and the field of collection stewardship, especially during these challenging times. Um, I do want to send a few reminders as we wrap up. Remember that ARCS has compiled a list of resources and materials related to COVID-19. You can access this information on the ARCS website, as well as make recommendations to add materials and information via the submission button at the top of the page. Also, if you've missed an ARCS chat episode, don't worry. You can catch them all up on our ARCS YouTube live page. Um, you can also listen to the podcast anywhere you get podcasts like Apple, um, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. And of course, go ahead, rate us, review us, and let us know what other topics you want to see. Many thanks again to everyone on the panel today. It's been wonderful to learn from you all, and I really value your time. Thank you again. We thank you. Appreciate you for having us. Thank you. All right, guys, we will see you all later. Take care. Bye. Go wash your hands.